Welcome to the podcast of Lancaster Brethren in Christ Church, located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. LBIC is a community being transformed by the love of Jesus, sharing this love with all people. We want this podcast to be an extension of our community and a connection with familiar voices. Together, we want to think about how to follow Jesus in our particular moment. So enjoy the podcast. We're grateful to have you join us as a part of the LBIC family. Remembering times is clearly not the staff's strong suit. (laughs) Every week we're up here, what time was that? I don't remember. Um, At least we have the date right most of the time. Uh, Just a a note about the budget meeting tonight. Um, So it's at 6 o'clock down the Fellowship Hall. Um, And for those of you who are just new or haven't been to one, uh, this is the time where um, we just kind of go through the finances of the year. I want to say thank you uh, just for your faithful, incredible, generous giving, not only for general offering stuff, but the purchase of the Compassion House and things. Um, We, uh, leadership team, staff, it's it's a gift and an honor to be entrusted with uh, the money that you give uh, to the ministry of the church. And so tonight is one of those just open book transparency kinds of meetings. Our treasurer, Steve Kreider, will go through um, every receipt that has been turned in the last year. (laughs) I'm kidding, that will not happen. Uh, But you'll get a a sense of where money has been spent, and um, it's pretty significant, too, because of the Compassion House and Brian coming on staff full-time for an entire year and some increased expenses and things here, too. Our budget is higher than, than it has been. So we want to talk those things through with you and make sure uh, we all have a corporate understanding of that. Um, there are budget paper copies on the back table uh, if you want to pick one up on, on the way out today or um, if you really email Steve quickly, maybe today he will be able to get you an electronic copy. I think that's it uh, for announcement purposes. Rachel, thanks for sharing this morning. Uh, your description of putting your talk together is my experience every week. So, uh, yeah, thoughtful procrastination. I love that. I think Brian and I thoughtfully procrastinate a lot throughout the week. We're kind of two of those people who are like, squirrel, oh, <laughs> you know, just distract ourselves with something else. Uh, I want to start with a, uh, a picture. Uh, so, Trev, if you want to put that up. Um, this, this, is, uh, this is a picture of four generations of my, my family. So, if you can't tell, I'm in, I'm in the bottom right uh, in a nice red-collared polo. Uh, my dad is the guy in the top left. He has a perm. This was the 80s when anything went with hair. So... Uh, He's at the top right or left, my, my pap, uh, my grandfather's at the top right, and my great-grandfather, Christian Nolt, who our son is named after, because both my, my dad and my grandpa were Clarence. So we went back two generations to Christian. Um, my dad's Clarence Lamar, my grandpa was Clarence Brubaker, none of those seemed like a good option, so we had to go back another generation. But this was at my great-grandfather's 100th birthday. Uh, here, here's another picture. Uh, this is from uh, my mom's side of the family. It's the tombstone of my grandparents, Harry and Velma Roth. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my, my mom is from a little town in Nebraska called Milford. 
I think it has a population of 2,000 and about 1,000 of those people are uh, college students that go to the local community college. So I took this picture when I was out there in 2019 at my Aunt Ora's uh, funeral. This is at East Fairview Mennonite Church. Uh, there's a cemetery there that holds a lot of my ancestors, a lot of my family. Uh, th these things are becoming more abnormal with uh, cremation and things being more um, popular as, as, as a way to, to deal with remains and things, and that's fine. Um, but there's something sacred and special, too, about tombstones and cemeteries that you can visit. My grandparents and a, a lot of my Nolt side of the family were at Salunga Mennonite Cemetery uh, in the metropolis of Salunga, um, right outside of Landisville. Uh, both my parents came from Mennonite uh, roots, um, and I am the beneficiary of a faith um, that was experienced and expressed in a particular tradition, Mennonite tradition, or the Anabaptist tradition, through a particular people. And it was experienced and expressed um, imperfectly. And that's both in the tradition and in the people. Uh, from this heritage, I received my, uh, my bedtime prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. If I should live another day, I pray the Lord to guide my way. Amen. And then uh, I also inherited our mealtime song. For health and strength and daily food, we praise thy name, O Lord. Amen. Or in my grandma's voice, for health and strength and daily food, we praise thy name, O Lord. Amen. <laughs> Love you, Grandma. Most importantly, what I received, though, from uh, my family uh, was an invitation to the way, to a way, and that's the way of Jesus. I love talking and thinking about uh, Christianity or the church or what we're a part of as the way because there's a sense of movement, there's a sense of following, and this is what they did imperfectly. Each generation before me tried to follow, tried to do their best to follow Jesus. And this way, at least for my family, had gone through generation after generation, and um, it's been passed on to me, and now it's my turn to take up this story uh, in my own way, and so there is an individualist sense, but I'm also part of a greater whole. I'm part of people who have been doing this for hundreds and hundreds of years. And I'm also part of a larger story, and so are you, because we're part of a people who has been doing this since humanity has begun. The point being is this. I had a heritage. Faith wasn't dropped to me out of nowhere. Uh, my story is a little different than my wife's. She was one of the first followers of Jesus in her family. Uh, and, and, and so I realized that it's a gift um, that's been given to me. And anytime faith finds somebody, God finds somebody, it's a gift. Um, but it wasn't dropped out of nowhere. It was something that was passed on to me and um, taken up as, as my own. As we talked in our interpretive community last week, I wondered what would have happened if my great-grandfather Christian would have become discouraged along the way, uh, perhaps by the Civil War. He was that old. He was born in the 1800s. Uh, and so... Um, he, I can't imagine, can't comprehend everything that he lived through. Civil War, Depression, uh, the Great Depression, World War I, II, Vietnam, you know, all these major things that are happening. Um, what would have happened if he would have given up? Uh, or at my grandfather's funeral, um, 
Paul's words to Timothy were read, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race. Um, but, but what if he hadn't? What if at some point in time he just kind of gave up on the story, didn't pass it on? And I don't ask these questions to speculate the what-ifs of, of what might have happened, but to emphasize how my ancestors continued to fight the good fight, continued to fail faithfully forward, and they stewarded a faith and passed it on to me. Now here's another different kind of trajectory that is related, uh, but it's going to seem like a hard right. Here's another um, thought that came out of our interpretive community last week. What if the, uh, we knew the date that Jesus was going to return? Don't worry, I, I'm not going to give a date. I'm not going to ask you to sell your possessions and show up to the budget meeting tonight with a checkbook. Not going to do that. Um, but let's just say that we knew when Jesus was going to come back, and it was going to be on June 13th, 2572, which would be my 594th birthday, just so you know. I picked June 13th because it was my birthday, and I thought, you know, that would be a good thing to so it's 549 years from now. So knowing that, we would know that Jesus would not be showing up in our lifetime. We would know that everything would not be set right, that every injustice wouldn't be settled, that the world would probably follow biblical and human history, and the same cycles would repeat themselves over and over from generation to generation. Would that mean for us as you and I sit here today that we would live differently now? Less alert, maybe? Indifferent? Believing less in the story of Jesus simply because what we hoped for, we knew wouldn't happen within our lifetime? Would that mean that we would live differently? Brian Zond, a pastor and writer, kind of brings these two things together. He says, these days I have a simple mission statement to help make Christianity possible for my grandchildren and their generation. And so this is the question I want to pose to us as we turn to the prophet Isaiah on the second Sunday of Advent. Will we and will you continue to hope even when the promise of that hope seems to be a long time in coming? Will you continue to hope in the midst of the craziness of the world Will you continue to hope, even though the promise of that hope, the fulfillment of that hope, seems to be a long time in coming? How will we, how will we continue to steward this faith, steward this story in our generation and for the sake of the generations to come? Can you see yourself as a steward of the story of Jesus, of faith for the next generation? Will we pass on, will you pass on a particular character of a life with God in the community of faith shaped by the story of Jesus? Even if this fulfillment is one or five or ten generations away, will you take it up? Will you continue to pass it on? Let's turn to the prophet Isaiah chapter 40 verses 1 through 11 this morning. Um, before we get there, uh, I want to give a little context to this passage before we read it. Uh, Isaiah's uh, 
said to, to be written by actually many authors, and so there's, uh, within the prophet Isaiah, there's three books of Isaiah, chapter 1 through 39, chapter 40 through 55, and then chapter 56 through the end. Um, even though there's different authors, uh, it's, it's said that there's a, a similar spirit of Isaiah, and that's what brings the things together. Scholars call it the spirit of Isaiah. And so chapters 1 through 39 uh, are, are judgment-oriented. You read those, they're, they're dealing with um, trying to get the message of warning and judgment across to the people. Um, and it ends with a particular king called Hezekiah, uh, who had no concern about the next generation, no concern about those who were going to follow after him. So Hezekiah, if you know anything about his story, he experienced this miraculous healing and then kind of took it for granted. Um, there's this envoy from Babylon who was this, what seemed to be a faraway place that could never have any impact on Israel or on Judah. And so they come, and, and he shows them everything that they have. They, you know, the, the, the riches, the armies, the, every, everything that was of value. And in, or in uh, verse 5 of chapter 39, this is how it closes. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away. And they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Here's the line that, that leads into chapter 40. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied. For here's what he thought. There will be peace and prosperity in my lifetime. Only concerned about his generation not concerned about the generations that come. Between the ending of chapter 39 and the beginning of chapter 40, there's about 160 years that takes place. There's a lot of things that happen. Assyria, the empire, uh, falls. Babylon rises. King Josiah, who enacted all the reforms to bring the people back to God, dies and his anarchist sons take his place. Jerusalem and the establishment, the city, the dynasty, the temple, all of it is destroyed and the people are sent into exile. And at the time of chapter 40, verse 1, around so, uh, they've been in exile for about 45 years. One commentator writes that if, uh, if the, the final period at the end of chapter 39 would be the final uh, statement in Isaiah, God's relationship with the people would have been done. But then we hit chapter 40, and it's a message to the people, one of hope, one that makes a turn. And there's a lot of time that takes place in between the turn, and you can think, if you haven't heard any message for the last 160 years, how you might receive this message of hope. Is it impractical? Because you haven't seen anything really hopeful for the last 160 years. Is this just idealism, maybe? Some people think that's what faith is, what Christianity is, is just an idealism to help us kind of cope with the world as it is. I don't think that's the case, but some people do. Some people treat hope that way. But this is a proclamation. It's not just a message, it's a proclamation. So imagine uh, King Arthur or somebody like that coming into town with trumpets blaring and those kinds of things, and a herald uh, kind of announcing what I'm about to read. The king's on his way. So hear this, uh, these verses, 1 through 11. 
in that kind of proclamation sort of way. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice cries out, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fail and fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are like grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of, the God, of God stands forever, endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up to a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voices with a shout. Lift it up. Don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here's your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. And he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers his lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. Let's just spend a few minutes going back through this and get a sense of what the prophet is proclaiming. Comfort, comfort, my people, is a message of comfort that uh, to a people who has experienced anything but. Verse 2 says this, and this might throw us for a minute. This is, doesn't maybe seem to be a very comforting thing. It says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received double from the Lord's hand for all of her sins. Now we might think and we might hear that as they sinned, they did something, and God is punishing them twice as much, twice as hard uh, for what they deserve. But it's actually quite the opposite. One of the corresponding passages is Isaiah 61, chapter, or verse 7, where the prophet says, Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. So here, God's not laying it on thick. God's not making them really know that they've messed up. Uh, in the language of last week, which identified with every teenager here, I think God is taking Israel out to wings, right? You remember that last week when my kid was in trouble, and instead of really letting them know we went out to wings and talked about it, and he got a double portion, two dozen. God's not laying it on thick, but God is giving Israel what Israel does not deserve, not what they do deserve, and not more than what they deserve. God's not giving them what they deserve at all. Good news is being proclaimed to the people, and this gives them something to do. 
Verses 3 through 5 talks about this. In the wilderness, prepare the way. You read the, the verses that go along with that. And the idea here is that when a king comes to town or when a ruler comes to town, and, and towns are, are relatively small at that point in time. And so the townspeople get together, they come together, and they literally prepare the way for the king to enter. They go out beyond the town gates. They ready the ground so that the king has a level place to enter into the town. That that's what uh, the prophet, that's the image the prophet is trying to strike for them. Now that might look and probably will look different for us, but let's just think for a moment about what it looks like for us to prepare the way. What does it look like for us to prepare the way? If you ever think about what it looks like uh, for you to prepare the way for the Lord's coming, to prepare your work or your home, I'm talking more than baseboards and stuff, too. Um, but even your church, your neighborhoods, your communities, what would it look like if you thought about tending to those places as a preparation for the Lord's coming? What would it look like in your workplaces, in your relationships, in our communities, for us to prepare the way for the Lord? Don't super-spiritualize it. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't go with all the, the things that, you know, uh, uh, I love what Rachel had shared, you know, all these things that we have to do to save everything. Um, make it a little more simple, down-to-earth, a little more practical. What are the things that you would nurture in your home? What are the characteristics that you would nurture? Husbands and wives, what would you nurture together? Those of you who have children, what would you nurture with them? Those of you who are in workplaces, what kind of environments would you nurture that would prepare the way for the Lord's coming? Because faith doesn't just drop out of nowhere. There's preparation that takes place. And so how are you preparing the places that you find yourselves? We're called to preparation. The Benedictine tradition has a motto. It's called Ora et Labora. It means pray and work. And so we see our activity as preparing the way, praying and working, preparing for the Lord to come. Alongside the way that we live, the work that we do, and how we go about that work, there's also a message that we proclaim. There's an important relationship between the things that we do and the message that we proclaim. You can't have one without the other. You can't have the, the doing without the message and you also can't have the message without the doing. And so here's the message. Cry out. So what should I cry? Here's the message. All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but, the word, uh, but because the breath of the Lord has blown on them, surely the people are like grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Now you might think uh, the, the author, the prophet, has this imagery of, of flowers dying, of grass dying, and, and all of these things facing the end, but I don't think the message of our mortality is bad news, actually. I think it's good news. It's not morbid at all. Because grass and flowers all have their seasons. They don't last forever. 
Our lives don't last forever. Your life, like a flower or like a field, has its time where it's going to bloom. And friends, we all have to come to grips with it. It's going to end. And we don't know when that's going to come. And that's okay. But you're going to have your season when you bloom. And then it will end. And the generation that follows you will have their season that blooms as well. Generations come and go. My great-grandfather bloomed in his time. My grandfather bloomed in his. I'm doing my best to bloom in mine. But then I'm going to go. I'll be done. I'll die. And so will you. And that's okay. Because the story that you and I are a part of is bigger than us. It's not just us. Because the story is going to go on. The hope will go on. It will take root, I pray, in the generation that follows me. It will spring up in beauty in the next generation, just like it has in mine, I trust. The word of our God endures forever. We need to rehear that because we, when we hear the word of our God, we always think of the Bible, and that's not what it's talking about here at all. The word of the Lord that endures forever is the active, spoken activity of God. God speaks, things happen. God's word, his activity, what he's doing, what God is doing, has been doing and will do, endures forever. We don't, but he does. God does. The story does. It moves somewhere and we're caught up in it. God's creative activity, friends, endures forever. One thing we can hear is this, that the faithfulness of one generation can and will be taken up by the next. So those of you who are in middle or high school, um, if uh, if you want to just tune in for the next 30 seconds, even if you've tuned me out for the last 45, that's fine. Um, I hope one thing that our church gives you is a faith that you want to take up. In fact, for every adult in the room, I think that's our duty, is to give the next generation a faith that they want to take up. And it's not because we give you an easy faith, but because we find the, the, the story of Jesus and have tried to embody and live out the story of Jesus, that we have become and have been a people who have been compelled by this story, so compelled by this story that you're intrigued enough to want to follow it yourselves. I hope it captures you. Next generation, those of you who are younger than me, those of you who are in school, I hope, I hope the story of Jesus captures you, the way that we talk about it, the way that we sing about it. All of those things are intentional. The songs that we sing, the things that we say, the things that we pray are intentional. They're our way in our time of thinking about how to follow Jesus and to steward the story. Prophet wraps up by saying this. You who bring good news to Zion, go up onto a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here's your God. See, 
The sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him. His recompense accompanies him. God's powerful. Yes, absolutely. He's coming with power and might. He's bringing reward. And he's going to make things right or make amends. That's what recompense means. He's going to make things right for all the wrongs. And we hear this and we think, oh, we hear God is mighty and all these powerful kinds of things. And, and in our imagination, uh, it goes wild to what that might mean. God's going to come with an army, some say. God's going to come with swords raised, some say. God's going to come with chariots, some say. But it shows, if when we picture it like that, how much imagination we actually lack. Because it doesn't take much imagination to create a God that's made in our own image. Those simply describe the rulers of this world. Instead, verse 11 talks about it in a particular way. What this might is going to look like, what this victory is going to look like. Prophet closes, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Commentator Ivan Friesen says that God's gentleness does not contradict his might. God's gentleness does not contradict his might. But I wonder this, friends, and maybe this is uh, the particular way in our generation in this time that we're talking about faith and what it means to follow Jesus. I wonder if his gentleness doesn't define his might. Can you imagine a mighty gentleness? That might is not defined by the strength over someone, but the absolute strength and intensity of tending with such love and care for what God has created. What happens if God is mighty in his gentleness? Is that the good news? Was Paul right that uh, when, he, when he said that the weakness of God, the weakness of God is stronger than human strength? This, friends, we have a story to steward. That's, that's what we're doing when we gather, whether it be in this context or in home churches, when we open the scriptures at home, when we close our eyes, when we sit in times of silence, when we move throughout our communities, you and I are stewarding a story. We're stewarding the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ for this particular generation in such a way that I hope we will do well in passing it along to the next, to our kids and their kids. We are stewards of this story. And it doesn't matter if the second advent, the return of Jesus, takes place on June 13th, 2572, 549 years from now. I don't think it matters when it's fulfilled. At least it doesn't for me. I can't imagine... If I had to wait a thousand years, there is no other story that compels me like this one.
And so even if I've got to wait a thousand years, I'm going to give myself fully to this story. Because this is the story of the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Who is Christ, who endures forever. Amen.